I think our younger children can be dismissed to children's church now. to get out your message outline. You have two inserts today, and uh, one of them is uh, a Bible reading record. And this is uh, sort of like you've seen those read through the Bible in a year kind of thing, except this has no time limit. If you open it up, it simply lists all the chapters in the Bible. And uh, when you read one, check it off. And then someday they'll all get checked off. And if you, you know, do it in a year or two years or five years, it doesn't matter. And uh, I just find it very helpful. The first time I did it, I discovered uh, that I was reading uh, pretty much, um, I wasn't reading like the Old Testament at all. And, um, you know, the Gospels were pretty good. You you really only need one of them, though, you know. And uh, so I like John and... You know, I read through the New Testament, didn't read a whole lot, you know, that hard stuff at the back. And uh, when you realize it, you're only reading about this much of the Bible if you just read the Gospels and and the Epistles. And there's a whole lot more Bible there, and that made that very clear to me. So uh, I encourage you to use that. We're going to talk about the Bible and reading it today, and so that's just a good tool to have. But if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 10. So we go through 2 Timothy, starting to near the end, finishing chapter 3. Paul is writing... To Timothy, Paul is in prison in Rome. Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus. There's a tremendous amount of persecution and suffering going on. And uh, Timothy's young and not sure how to deal with all these difficult times. And uh, so Paul is writing to him. And he writes in this passage uh, this morning, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't you wish that verse wasn't there? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable 
for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have brought us once again to your word. We ask that you would speak to us and that we would hear you, that whatever it is we need to learn from you this morning, that you would speak clearly and that we would listen carefully and that we would apply it to our life and leave here this morning knowing that we have heard from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 116 years ago, as a professor of church history at the United Presbyterian College in Edinburgh, his name was James Orr, and a very famous professor at the time, and wrote a very famous book called The Christian View of God and the World. And in that book, he made the following observation. He says, it need not further be denied that between this view of the world involved in Christianity and what is sometimes called the modern view of the world, there exists a deep and radical antagonism. James Orr observed this deep and radical antagonism over a century ago in 1890. How can we possibly fail to see it now? Between the prevailing worldview and the worldview of Christianity, there is a deep and radical antagonism. This part is going to get a little academic, so stick with me. Um, But I know you're all smart people and you can handle this. You see, as Christians, we are unavoidably engaged in a great battle of worldviews, a conflict over the most basic issues of truth and meaning. And a worldview that starts with the existence and sovereign authority of the self-revealing God of the Bible will be diametrically opposed to worldviews that deny God or engage in what we might call defining divinity down. A lot of people try to bring God down to our level. So it's a little easier to deal with that way. And at the heart of this controversy, this antagonism, is the irreducible obstacle of biblical authority. As a matter of fact, it may be impossible to overestimate the true depth of postmodern antipathy to the Bible, at least to the Bible as the authoritative revelation from God. The Bible as a book of good and convenient things is okay. But as the authoritative revelation from God, we have problems with that. Just consider what the modern secular mind confronts when it comes to the Bible. The average person uh, comes in, and at the most foundational level, the Bible makes a totalizing claim to truth. I looked that up. It's actually a word, totalizing Now, in postmodern academic discourse, this means that the Bible claims to present absolute and non-negotiable truth that effectively trumps all other authorities. The Bible is first. It's the authority. Now, in intellectual context, 
uh, in academics today, there's the, uh, the supreme authorities are personal autonomy, self-expression, and uh, so this claim of the Bible to be the absolute non-negotiable truth is this unfair imposition of authority on me. It's a violation of the contract theory that lies at the heart of the postmodern experiment. Contract theory very simply means that we agree to follow the rules that we agree with. And uh, that may sound good at first glance, but basically it says if I like it, I'll do it. If I don't like it, I won't do it. I'll agree to follow that which I agree with. And people just sort of subconsciously take that to the Bible. You know, I'll contract with the Bible, um, but that's open to constant renegotiation. I'll follow the Bible as long as I agree with it. So much for its absolute authority. Because certainly, if you look around, much of America today doesn't agree with a good bit of what the Bible has to say. And that's because the Bible contains so much material that runs against the moral sense of a largely secular society. We have to be real honest about that, admit right up front, the Bible pulls no punches, it leaves no room for a public relations effort to clean up the dust storm. It's not willing to negotiate. It's not willing to say, well, if you take this part, we'll give that part away. It's an all or nothing, take it or leave it, believe it or don't. There just isn't a lot of gray to work with. And if you think about it, the Bible begins with a straightforward declaration of creation, complete with a divine design for every aspect of the created order. And thus we confront uh, the creation of human beings as made in the image of God, uniquely gifted and accountable as moral and spiritual creatures. And we add, they're made male and female to the glory of the Creator. And there it is, gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. There's no vision of gender differences as social construction. And then marriage immediately follows as the divinely designed institution for human ordering and reproduction and sexuality and romantic fulfillment. And marriage, the union of one man and one woman, is presented as an objective reality established and accepted as a moral covenant with legal and moral boundaries, not as a contract to be made, remade, or unmade at will. And we haven't actually gotten very far in the Bible yet. Then comes sin. And if that other stuff didn't upset the secular world, this surely will. Because the third chapter of Genesis clearly fails to pass muster in terms of postmodern psychotherapeutic expectation. You see, the Bible, in the Bible, the responsibility for sin is laid right at the feet of us, the feet of man. How can that be? And there's consequences for sin. Downright repressive. And, of course, the consequences for sin is hell. It's absolutely draconian. And more troubling is sin is presented as something that actually tells the truth about us, not merely the truth about a bad world system. 
And from beginning to end, the Bible undermines the secular worldview at its very foundation. I mean, the first four words of the Bible are landing like uh, nitroglycerin on the postmodern mind. In the beginning, God. And from that point onward, everything flows from the fundamental reality of God's existence and God's power and God's purpose. And creation itself is explained as a theater for God's glory. Even as human beings, male and female, are created in God's image. And then marriage is an uh, institution as God's gift and God's command and not a sociological adaptation to cultural conditions. And human beings are given responsibility as both stewards and rulers uh, of the earth. And none of that in the first three chapters of the Bible fits with how postmodern people think today. They say the, the Bible is hopelessly speciest, which means it's centered around one species, us. And, and this is a quote, uh, to use their language, and I have to read this, I never remember this. The problem with the Bible is it presents a totalizing meta-narrative of hegemonistic authoritarianism. Yeah, obviously, it's written by an academic. It just means it's just bad. And the reason they think it's bad is because it tells us in no uncertain terms that God is God and we're not. And that doesn't sit well with the world. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, presents an unfarnished uh, picture of man's sin and sin's consequences. And to a culture that's deeply committed to a therapeutic worldview, this is just too much. We have banished sin from our moral vocabulary. And so what do postmodern Americans do if they happen to come to church and start reading this and they're faced with the fall and the giving of the law and the sacrificial system and blood atonement? And they view Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac is now cited by postmodern critics as the Bible's second most egregious, reprehensible, outrageous example of God-inspired child abuse. The first, of course, being the cross. The law is a stumbling block for the postmodern mind. Moral relativism rules the field of ethics today. Laws are seen as socially constructed and needlessly oppressive instruments of subjection. In many law schools today, there's a movement known as critical legal theory, which claims that laws reveal hidden claims of manipulative uh, power, and they need to be deconstructed for the betterment of mankind. They wouldn't say mankind, they would say humankind. Stand corrected. And thus, consistent with the postmodern's uh, complete embrace of subjectivity, Laws exist to be endlessly renegotiated and reinterpreted. We agree to follow the rules that we agree with. Of course, one of the most cherished uh, maxim sayings of the postmodern mind is the so-called death of the author. 
And that means the reader, not the author of the text, is the ruling authority. That means that the, the text means what the reader says it means, not what the author intended. When that's applied to the scriptures, and particularly the task of preaching, it means the Bible is no longer the authority, nor is even the preacher the authority, but the listener is the authority over the text. We're going to talk more about that next week. We agree with the rules that we agree with. Well, you jump from that view of no authority or self-authority to a biblical view. Deuteronomy 5. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. Not a whole lot of gray there. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that your Lord, the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and it may go well with you and you may live long in the land that you shall possess. So much for reinterpretation and renegotiation. God is not in the negotiating business. The postmodernist demands a hermeneutic of suspicion. Hermeneutic is the science of interpreting the Bible. So they come at it from a viewpoint of suspicion demanding that the text meet his or her expectations. We want the text to do or say what he wants it to do or say. Of course, the Bible sets down a hermeneutic of submission. As God commands and explains and then demands obedience from his people. And nothing less. God doesn't give you the Ten Commandments and say, and if you really like these... Seven out of ten will do. The Bible presents a living God, creator of the entire cosmos, as a speaking God who addresses his people with authoritative revelation. Deuteronomy 4 says, Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? And Israel was to learn. We saw a little bit of this in our adult uh, Sunday school class this morning. Revelation must lead to obedience, lest God's wrath fall on the people. When God speaks to us, our response is to trust and obey. The Lord doesn't invite his people to speculate about his character, his purpose, or his power. He demands obedience as he reveals his saving purpose and sets down his covenant. As it starts beginning the prologue to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And the rest of the Old Testament continues the pattern and widens the divide. God elects uh, Israel as his chosen people, inviting charges of ethnocentrism, then violating the modern norms of war, Israel is charged to wage a holy war against pagan nations, and God is presented as the supreme ruler of all nations, the only true sovereign in a world of contending kingdoms. The prophets attack injustice and the abuse of privilege, both within and without God's people. And to these are added claims of miracles, supernatural occurrences, prophets, and the imposition of law. And it all amounts to one giant obstacle— to postmodern people whose worldview is so established in secular terms, the Bible is more of a problem than a solution.
And then what of the New Testament? We haven't even gotten to the New Testament yet. Instead of refuting the Old Testament, the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. It pushes the envelope of secular suspicion even farther. And now we confront the great claim of the incarnation that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And miracles are documented. The teaching of Christ is presented in full force. The gospel is laid before our eyes. And then come the cross and the empty tomb. God's plan to save his people from sin comes to a climax in the suffering and death of Christ. Presented as God's plan set into action before the creation of the world. And the empty tomb points to the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. And the truth claims of the gospel contradict any effort to reduce Jesus to a mere teacher or a guide or a social activist or some sort of prototherapist. And the church is established as God's people on earth. An eschatological people, which means people who put their hope in the coming of Christ to rule and to reign forever. And it's people who are drawn from every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation. And then looming in the future lies judgment. The realities of heaven and hell are presented as dual destinations for humanity. And the wrath of God is promised to be poured out upon sinners even as the mercy of God is extended to all who come to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. The way to salvation is narrow, the road to destruction is wide, and there is but one Savior and one way of salvation. And all this is just too much for the postmodern mind to handle. A deep and radical antagonism separates the Bible and our culture. And... But it's always been that way since the fall. Antagonism has always existed, separating obedience to God's truth from the demand for self, for autonomy. And yet Christians are always perplexed by resistance to the Bible, by deafness to the gospel. We tend to distance ourselves from the reality the Bible sounds exceedingly strange to modern and postmodern ears. We underestimate the distance of the divide between biblical Christianity and secular worldviews. And all of this serves to remind us of our great evangelistic and apologetic task and of the fact that salvation is all of grace. After all, it's not that we were smart enough to wade through all of this and emerge as believers. It's that our eyes were opened so that we would see And the radical antagonism that James Orr talked about back in 1890 isn't overcome by force of argument or brilliant persuasion, but by the grace of God. And as we engage in the controversies and the debates of this age, we have to keep that great fact in the forefront of our thinking. The people aren't going to change because we're smarter or we speak better or we're more persuasive, they're going to change because God changes them. It's the grace of God that changes them. And we forget that. And Paul doesn't want Timothy to forget that because here in 2 Timothy, Paul is taking on the controversies, the debates of his age. 
And they're not all that different than our age. False teachers have snuck into the church. Unbelievable. And so he gives Timothy and us some things to think about in these last days. If you remember from last week, life in these last days didn't sound very appealing. Now he's writing A.D. 66, A.D. 67, but it sounds very familiar. We saw this last week, 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. How nice for them. But you read that and, you know, front page of this morning's paper, probably find all that stuff. Endless sins of sensuality combined with multiplying information wedded to a corrupt way of learning and knowing that people simply cannot acknowledge the truth. And that's what life is like in these last days. So since we're living in these last days, and since there's a deep and radical antagonism in the words of Francis Schaeffer, how should we then live? What must we do when we live in the midst of a deep and radical antagonism? And it is in answering that question, having laid out the problem that the Apostle Paul is bringing to us this morning, this morning's text. And the first thing we're told is we must resolve to follow the best mentors. Resolve to follow the best mentors. That should be the first blank in your outline. Verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Resolve to follow the best mentors. These are people whose lives reflect the gospel, who've been tested by hardship and protected by God. And in a world of pop idols, not least of all in the field of religion, we must become intentional about choosing the best mentors, or by default, we shall probably choose poor ones. In contrast to the false godliness and false ministries of the false teachers, Paul is issuing a call to Timothy to remember his lifestyle and virtues. The language behind the opening phrase, you, however, have followed my, suggests intimacy. The literal meaning is to follow alongside, to accompany me. He's saying, you have followed alongside me. And he's challenging Timothy to recall those deep master-disciple intimacy that had begun with Timothy's conversion as a teenager during Paul's first missionary journey in Asia Minor. Paul had been present, was likely instrumental in Timothy's conversion, and he'd become large in Timothy's world. And since that time, this young man, Timothy, had walked alongside Paul, studying him in varied circumstances and diverse cultures. He'd heard Paul challenged, and he'd heard his responses. Paul's repeated sermons compromised Timothy's theology, and he'd observed that Paul's life matched his teaching. 
So Paul confidently affirmed that Timothy is intimately acquainted with his life. As Paul termed it, my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. Paul's way of life confirmed his teaching. And that's something that he had told Timothy about earlier in 1 Timothy 4. He told him, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. In addition, Paul's lifestyle is infused with purpose. He's single-minded about the most important things, the gospel and Christ's glory. And he's, as Timothy is being reminded of Paul's life and conduct, he'd be encouraged to continue in that same teaching, the same conduct. And alongside his lifestyle, Paul raises the memory of his virtues. My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And there's no ego in this. Remember, Paul's at the end of his life. He's about to be martyred. And he wants with all his heart for Timothy to carry on. And so these virtues are simply the cardinal virtues, Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope. Patience and steadfastness stand for hope in this list because they lead to the next subject, which is persecution. And Paul recalls what he's been through which part of it he shared with Timothy. He says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. He could have recalled other things that Timothy had observed, being jailed in uh, Philippi in Acts 16 or being imprisoned in Rome. But he appealed to the sufferings that surrounded Timothy's early days as a believer. He wanted to concentrate on those that had left an indelible impression on this young man. He'd been driven by persecution from the city of Antioch in Acts 13. He had to flee from Iconium when a plot to lynch him was uncovered in Acts 14. And Timothy was present with Paul in Lystra when Paul was stoned. Rocks crashed against Paul's skull. And he felt blood spattered and broken beneath the rubble. And they all thought he was dead. And his murderers departed and leaving his body to his followers. And how they mourned. What would they do without him? Suddenly Paul pops open one eye and then the other. Says, it's all right, brothers. No funeral today. Let's get out of here. That's kind of a paraphrase. (laughs) What the text actually says is when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. The best mentors. You know, of all the teachers I've had, and there's been a lot, But there's two from Gordon Conwell that I remember especially fondly. Elmer Smick and J. Christie Wilson. Elmer taught Old Testament and church government, and Christie taught missions. And um, I can't honestly say that I remember a whole lot of what they taught me in class. But I don't think I could ever forget what they taught me by their lives. They're two of the godliest men I've ever met. Both older, they were both around 65 when I knew them. And Elmer Smick would come up alongside me in the hallway and put his arm around me and say, David, God has something special planned for you. God is going to use you. I've been praying for you. And it's hard to say how encouraging that was. Christy Wilson prayed so much and knew the Bible so well, the two seamlessly blended together in his life. He would be praying and scripture just poured out as part of his prayers. 
You couldn't carry on a conversation with him without praying several times, at least once every couple of minutes, which means if you talked to him for 20 minutes, you prayed 10 times. But what a lot of people don't know about them is, uh, in Elmer's case, in the great battles over the inspiration and authority of Scripture in the late 60s and early 70s, one of the intellectual heavyweights that took on liberal academia was Elmer Smick. He obviously had learned well from his mentor, Francis Schaeffer. Back before the Russian invasion of Afghanistan in the 70s, there was a Christian church in Kabul. The pastor there had led hundreds to Christ and had planted that church so well and so deep that remnants of that church have survived 30 years of nonstop war. Back in the early 70s, when he finally got permission to baptize people, Christy Wilson conducted the first Christian baptism in that land in over a thousand years. Two godly men. They both died and are with the Lord now. But their lives and their struggles have impacted thousands of people. Paul's in his very last days. He's going to die shortly. He's telling Timothy, remember the struggles? The Lord rescued me from all of them. There he's quoting Psalm 34 where David celebrates his deliverance. The only way Paul is going to be delivered uh, is by going to his death. And he's at peace with that. But God had rescued him time and time and time again, which meant that he would do it for Timothy time and time and time again. God always rescues his people, either in this life or by taking them to heaven. What must we do when we live in the midst of a deep and radical antagonism? Well, the second thing we're told is we have to be realistic about the world. Realistic about the world. We should expect opposition. And if we uh, get it, we shouldn't be surprised by it. When Paul says that evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, he's not saying that each generation will be worse than the previous one, but that in every generation, evil people will spiral downward into hopeless corruption. And he's saying, don't be surprised by that. Apart from the intervention of the grace of God, that's what sin does to people. And fittingly, Paul gives Timothy a special truth, a spiritual truth to remember. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself uh, gave us that truth in John 15. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Paul understood the truth of persecution from the very beginning. Right after his conversion on the Damascus Road, the Lord said to Ananias in Acts 9, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You know, perhaps when we baptize people, we ought to read that verse. Guess what you've just gotten yourself into? Paul was stoned in Lystra, and Luke reports in Acts 14. 
When they preached the gospel to that cities and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. They went back. He got stoned there and he went back. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He wrote to the Thessalonians. You see that verse there? I'm not going to read it. The Philippians. Affliction and suffering and persecution is going to be part of your life. And if anyone accepts a standard, set of standards that are different from the world's standards, then he or she is bound to have trouble. Some form of opposition will come if we attempt to tell the truth to a world that hates to be told the truth. It may come in subtle forms of rejection, being ignored, being patronized, uh, a mocking look or condensation. Augustine said, even when no one molests or vexes their body, for they suffer this persecution not in their bodies but in their hearts. He says some of those things hurt just as much. And Timothy knew all that. But to hear it from Paul again in this period just before his death had to be invigorating. This was the reality, and the acceptance of it placed Timothy on solid ground for what was to come. And that reality will stand us well in today's battles. Our culture flees suffering, sees nothing noble in it or beyond it. But Christians are told to expect it as part of the regular course of serving God. And those who do will stand strong. Significantly, the next part of this passage contains the Bible's most famous statement of the inspiration of Scripture. But you have to understand, it's set in the context of continuing, going on, remaining in the gospel in the face of suffering. What Christians believe about the Scriptures has everything to do with keeping the faith in hard times. What must we do when we live in the midst of a deep and radical antagonism? The last thing we're told is we must rely on the Bible. We must rely on the Bible. Not only do the scriptures shape the Christian's mind into a worldview profoundly alien to a secular worldview or a simply selfish person, not only do the scriptures make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ, but precisely because they are God-breathed, they're profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And Timothy's continuing in the ministry is a great concern to Paul. It's the main concern of this passage, which has as its central command the word continue in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. Timothy had become convinced of the gospel through the instruction of three people, his mother Lois, his grandmother Eunice, and his closest friend, the Apostle Paul. Evidently, although his father was a Gentile, his mother and grandmother were Hebrew, and they had educated him in the Old Testament scriptures. And when Paul came preaching the gospel from the Old Testament, they believed in Christ and with Paul's help instructed Timothy so that he too believed. And Timothy had the uh, privilege of learning the gospel from the teaching and lives of these three people, his mother, his grandmother, and his mentor. And he heard the doctrines of the gospel message. And he saw it lived out and it had a saving effect on him. Think of what it would mean if we could say to all of our children, 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. You know, your pastors, Sunday school teachers, parents, and grandparents. You know what they taught you. And you know that their lives match their teaching. Continue in the gospel because you know from whom you learned it. That's what the church needs. Paul further grounds it to continue uh, upon um, his knowledge of the scriptures. He says, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Lois and Eunice began teaching Timothy from the earliest age, the substance of the Old Testament. His first stories were Bible stories. I don't think they had picture books back then, but they had beautiful oral tellings and retellings by these godly women. And from them, he learned of the great events and grand passages of the Bible. And building on that, they taught him the Bible's principles and precepts, filling his head and heart with God's word, which made him receptive to the gospel. The phrase, the sacred writings, which make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ, echoed Jesus' declaration after his resurrection in Luke 24 that the Old Testament scriptures point to him. As Timothy came to faith, he understood that Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. He was the Passover lamb. He fulfilled the uh, tabernacle and all the messianic prophecies. He could see how it all fit together, how it culminated in Christ. And the mention of the sacred writings occasioned Paul's classic statement about the nature and sufficiency of the Bible. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And we see the scripture is inspired. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's a transliteration, the Greek word theonoustos. Theo meaning God, noustos meaning breath. When you speak, your word is you breathed. Your breath, conditioned by your mind, pours forth in speech. You breathe out your words. This belief that scripture is breathed out by God expresses the view of the first century Jews about the Old Testament. And the early church believed the same thing. And as Peter declared in the passage we read as our responsive reading this morning, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, so they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are God's breath, God's words. But this is also how the early church regarded the gospels and the epistles. Paul uses the same word for scripture uh, here that he used back in 1 Timothy 5 when he said, for the scriptures says, and then he quotes from both Old and New Testament. Similarly, Peter included Paul's writings in the category of Scripture. He says, Our beloved brother Paul also write to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all of his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other Scriptures. Peter regarded Paul's writings to be Scripture. Paul insisted his writings be read, shared, obeyed, and then claimed in 1 Corinthians 2, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. It's evident that Paul regarded his own writings as Scripture. So when he says all Scripture is breathed out by God, he's including all of the New Testament as well. And that's certainly what the early church came to believe 
and was willing to die for. The second thing we see is that it's profitable. It says it's profitable for teaching and reproof, which has to do with doctrine. And that's why the whole of the Bible has to be studied, and that's why you have that Bible reading guide uh, this morning. That you don't read just Romans, and not just the stories, but you read all of the Bible, the teaching, the poetic, the narrative, the apocalyptic, proverbial, prophetical, historical sections of the Bible together make up the whole tapestry of the church's teaching. And of course, when this is done, there will be reproof, which is more than rebuking. It literally means to censure, which is a form of discipline. It reminds us that the discipline of the church must be based on the word of God. Those true to the scriptures can't escape this duty. And together, the teaching and the reproof produce the benefit of sound doctrine. The second pair here, correction and training in righteousness, have to do with conduct. Correction comes from a Greek word for straight. The New Living Translation helpfully renders this, it straightens us out. God's word is profitable in a practical way. Those who accept it begin to find their lives straightening out. And they'll be ready for God's positive effect of training in righteousness. The righteousness that comes to the believer by faith is then realized through the training of God's word. And then the final thing we see is that Scripture equips. He ends on the sufficiency of Scripture by saying the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. History records that John Calvin took this verse to heart. He believed the Scriptures were breathed out by God, profitable in equipping. According to his biographer, Uh, T.H.L. Parker, he commented on Calvin's preaching. And this is what he said. He said, on Sunday, he always took the New Testament except for a few psalms on Sunday afternoon. Apparently there were two services, Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon. During the week, it was always the Old Testament. He took five years to complete the book of Acts. He preached 46 sermons on Thessalonians, 186 on Corinthians, 86 on these letters to Timothy, and Titus, 43 on Galatians, 48 on Ephesians, and spent five years on his harmony of the Gospels. And that was just on Sundays. During the week, in those same five years, he preached 159 sermons on Job, 200 on Deuteronomy, 353 on Isaiah, and 123 on Genesis. It's a lot of sermons in five years. All this because what he believed about the Bible. He believed the whole of Scripture was the Word of God. We must not pick and call the Scriptures to please our own fancy, he wrote. We must receive the whole without exception. So in retrospect, we can see what Paul is doing to help Timothy endure persecution and suffering. He recalls his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, and himself, and how their lives matched their teaching. And as he recalled his immersion from childhood in the sacred writings that made him wise for salvation uh, through faith in Christ, he'd be further encouraged. As he reflected on the scriptures, as the very breath of God, he would continue to stand up for the gospel. Both Paul and Timothy understood that either all scripture is God-breathed or it is not. Either it is profitable or it is not. Either it equips or it doesn't. 
And the testimony of God's word is that it is his breath and it is everything to believers. Deuteronomy records that when Moses finished writing the words of the law and giving it to the Levites, he said to them, Deuteronomy 32, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. When Jesus began his ministry and was tempted in the wilderness by Satan in Luke 4, it was his knowledge of God's word that enabled him to defeat the tempter with some uh, three very deft quotations from Deuteronomy. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, leaned on the sufficiency of Scripture in his time of need. Indeed, his summary response to the tempter is like a bookend to Moses' declaration that the Scriptures are your life. For Jesus there insisted, he insisted that they are the soul's food. In Matthew 4, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, he said, But it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The scriptures are life to Moses and food to Jesus, and they can't be less to us. They're the breath of God. They are our breath, our life, our food. Now, all of this is well and good to know, but in reality, it's a whole lot harder to put it into practice. And I think it's because just as Tim, Paul is telling Timothy, who he knew was a timid person, that as much as we may agree with what is said here, we really don't want to do it because it's hard. The teaching isn't that hard if you're the student. But reproof slams our own self-sufficiency. Correction nails our pride. Training in righteousness is just flat hard work. And when the word of God goes to work on your life, it can get very uncomfortable. And in case you haven't noticed, most of us prefer comfortable to uncomfortable. And so far too often for far too many we simply don't take the time to read the scriptures. In January of 2004, I love this when I found this, former MTV political correspondent, didn't know MTV was a hotbed for political correspondence, but Tabitha Soren, the political correspondent for MTV, she said this, no matter how secular our culture becomes, it will remain drenched in the Bible, since we will be haunted by the Bible, even if we don't know it, doesn't it make sense to read it? Words of wisdom from MTV. How does that feel to be corrected and challenged by MTV, that bastion of deep thinking? See, the danger in contemporary evangelicalism is not a formal rejection of Scripture, but this unrealistic assumption that because we're Christians, we know the Bible. While, in fact, we press on, reality, go backwards, towards endless conferences on tools and techniques and agendas and gimmicks. Some might be useful if the Bible itself were not so commonly sidelined. For people who don't want to read the Bible, it still remains the most important book in history. And it makes fantastic claims about its authorship. It says the author is God, and the scriptures are inspired or breathed out by God. And it's a holy and divine book because it comes from a holy and divine source, God. The same week, in fact, the day before Tabitha Soren 
asked, doesn't it make sense to read it? John Piper wrote this. The day before, I love the Bible the way I love my eyes. Not because my eyes are lovely, but because without them I can't see what's lovely. Without the Bible, I could not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Without the Bible, I could not know the unsearchable riches of Christ. Without the Bible, I would not know that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I love the Bible because it gives the wisdom that leads to salvation and shows me this salvation is nothing less than seeing and savoring the glory of Christ forever and then provides for me inexhaustible ways of seeing and knowing and enjoying Christ. Do you love the Bible? Perhaps when we live in the midst of a deep and radical antagonism, it would be profitable for us to actually read it. Perhaps we should pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we have so many excuses. And while we differ with the world on our view of the Bible, we act the same. They don't read it, and very often neither do we. Father, we beg your forgiveness for ignoring your word. We pray that you would instill in us a desire to become people of the book, who read it, who know it, who learn to love it. Father, we'll are going to leave here this morning and go back to very busy lives of working and teaching and, and parenting and studying, playing. And we'll get preoccupied and stressed and busy. And we won't open your word. Father, I ask this morning that your spirit would work so powerfully in our lives, in our hearts and our minds, that we would have a desire to open your word, to read it, to see what it says, to think on it, to see how it would change our lives. I ask that you would do that for us this morning so that we would know how to live in the midst of a deep and radical antagonism. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.